Whoa! I just found out that VFX began to be used in filmmaking more than a hundred years ago. And more recently, CGI became a major technique to create them. Today, you can't watch a movie that doesn't contain some. I wonder who came up with those ideas. Well, stay tuned because in this episode, number 2145, Bill and John Johnston, the CG Bros, will be doing a deep dive into that subject when they answer the commonly asked question, who are the past pioneers of CGI VFX? On the CG Bros CG Insider Podcast. Welcome to the CG Bros Insider Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. In today's episode, we're going to be answering a question from a fan, Francis D., from Denver, Colorado, that he submitted on our Ask Us Anything page at thecgbros.com. And we brushed up against it here and there in a few previous podcasts, but today we're going to focus on it together when we discuss who are the pioneers of CGI and VFX. And by the end of our discussion today, uh, you'll have learned who the early pioneers of CGI and VFX were and what contributions they made and what made their contribution so valuable. Uh, we've mentioned a few of them before, as Sean mentioned, uh, but we're going to do a bit more history, I think, into the lives of these uh, great pioneers. Uh, even if you do know some of the history behind uh, creation of CGI and VFX, we're hoping to fill in some of the blanks for you and give you some background that you probably or hopefully didn't know already. Uh, you also get to hear some of our personal thoughts and professional insights about the progression of CGI throughout the years as well. So uh, be sure to stay uh, to the end of the podcast where we'll be reading uh, and addressing some comments made on prior podcasts by sophisticated, sophisticated folks just like yourself. And uh, who knows, we may even be reading your comment today. I'm Bill Johnston, one of your hosts for this edition of the CG Insider Podcast. And I'm Sean Johnston. And together we are the CG Bros. Uh, as we've seen, uh, current day CGI and VFX techniques, Sean, are continuing to push the boundaries of visual entertainment, as well as technology, and uh, helping us to visualize fantastic new worlds and creatures of the, and, and worlds of the future, cities of the future, and, and, and even allowing us to see the past by recreating historical places, people, and events. And we've kind of talked about that in the uses of CGI. Uh, but we haven't really directly talked about the differences uh, between CGI, CGI and VFX before, and they're just different. As a matter of fact, VFX has really been the catalyst or, or the driver, if you will, or the very reason that CGI exists today. Uh, it's because of our desire to see more sophisticated visual effects. Absolutely. And as uh, the originators of VFX were inspired by the, the, the moment that moving picture technology produced something called movies, uh, and movies had been you know, the medium by which VFX has, has really been created. Um, yes, and so. hopefully later on, um, I, you know, you're going to be talking about things from uh, the pioneering past, I, I might bring some things up from right around the 70s to right before uh, the year 2000. So I'll, I'll have some examples of some of the VFX and CGI that are kind of like milestones that I, I wanted to share today. Yes. And so what created VFX? Well, practical effects. And that's where I'm going to start talking about the forefathers of, of animation and these early practical effects technologies that lit, led to the field of visual effects and to what we call today as, as digital visual effects. Um, so from the earliest days of, of cinema and movie making, practical effects have really been you know, a huge draw for audiences. It, it, was, it, was the, it was the thing that really made, made the movie stand out. Uh, some early pioneers um, were masters of practical effects. And so... Uh, they they really were the catalyst or the precursor that drove uh, the art of VFX for t uh, today. So let's kind of quickly, before we get too far, just restate again what practical effects are. And simply put, 
They're generally anything that can be added to the camera's view during what's called principal photography, when you're actually shooting, uh, you know, recording from the camera. And so it's what the lens sees. And it, would normally, it wouldn't normally be there on its, uh, you know, it's something that, that, that uh, another way to say it actually would be that it's any effect that's produced by hand. Say, for an example, um, rain created by sprinklers in the scene. Rolling, you know, fog machines that, that, that push rolling background haze uh, through the scene, atmospheric lighting, uh, or pyro, even pyrotechnics and explosions that are you know, placed on the, in the scene. I know you, you've been to a Kiss concert, right? <laughs> so, Me? I haven't been to yeah. a Kiss concert. Oh, no. okay. Well, people who've been to a Kiss concert know, know what I'm talking but about. But I do but, have a friend that just went recently and he did say, wow, they have really aged. <laughs> well, you know, it's hard to tell with all that makeup on. Yeah, they, I guess. They need, some, they need some VFX, is what it is. I guess they probably, I wonder if they dye their chest hair. They probably do. I would. I would. <laughs> well, you know, and so practical effects uh, are basically created with, through a painstaking practice of, of old world technology, or not old world, but old old school technologies, which is where, where I'm headed, which is, and we've covered this before, you know, splicing a film back together, um, use of matte paintings and, and simple camera techniques uh, such as depth of field and, and double exposure and, and uh, maybe even the use of miniatures and cable harness rigs to make people fly and stuff like that. Even, even especially constructed props that are designed to collapse and, and, and break when you, when you crash on them. I'm not, I know a lot of those, uh, chairs and, and tables and, and, uh, yes. stuff in the old Westerns were, were, were built to just, you know, you touch them and they'd fall over. But yes. And, and, you, and there's uh, always vinegar and baking soda. Of course. Well, that that's always a, a, a well. It's, that's how you make volcanoes explode, right? That's right. Or you can have, put on somebody's face, and actually, it looks like acid coming off when you pour it on there. Kind oh, of that. fizzles and bubbles. That's nice, a good practical offense. Well, you know, I've, I think I've actually seen stuff like that in some of the old movies, and it, it, it it's quite it's quite realistic when you when you take a look at it, even from today's standards. Yes, I have I have a buddy who uh, who's worked on a short film for a long period of time. He he began shooting uh, i guess it was super eight long gosh back in the back in the 70s with his brother and they used to make uh stop action movies with their gi joes and uh he's been working on editing his uh his his movie that he had made uh, i won't give the name of it but eventually i'd love to show it to uh show it to you and then share it with uh with you uh you all as well That'd be great. Well, you know, I think uh, our discussion today is going to, at least for the current time, just kind of take us up to the turn of the century. Um, you can almost consider this podcast to be a primer for next week's podcast, uh, which is uh, who are the current pioneers of CGI and VFX. So be sure you, you come back next week for that. Uh, so who, who, were, you know, who were the people that pushed the limits? Uh, you know, who, what, kind of, what kind of techniques did they have? What kind of tools did they have that really pushed and push the, the, the technology and the, the art and craft of VFX uh, to what we know today. Um, you know, I talked about A Trip to the Moon by uh, George Malise in 1902, and he, he, blend, he was the first guy that really blended practical effects together with a compelling story and then and, and cut it all together and produced it into what we would call a standard visual film narrative today. But he, he proved that movie making was more believable and a more natural home for practical effects than the stage of a theater, which is where most, that's where people went for entertainment. Uh, when Before movies came along, you'd go to the stage and you'd see plays. And, and you know, uh, while the art of stagecraft is amazing uh, unto itself, it just, it really pales in comparison when it comes to believability uh, that movies were able to produce. I mean, we, we look at them now and we laugh, we, we, you know. 
that that's kind of look how fake that looks. But at the time, that was groundbreaking stuff. Well, I've, I've seen a lot of those uh, those those uh, early movies, and they look pretty good. And I know they they it's hard to hard to compare what they did back then to what we do today. I mean, we've we've we basically what they say jumped on the shoulders of of those pioneers and and you know um, uh, you know built on top of all of their ideas and made them refine them over time and. I, I love looking at some of those old ones because I'm so sick of seeing CGI sometimes because we're so involved with it every day. It's it's just a nice uh, escape to see even a black and white movie with uh, old uh, VFX in there. So that's that's my perspective on that. Oh, I agree. Well, uh, you know, practical effects. I, I've experienced some of that burnout as well, and I think practical effects are beginning to make a, a real comeback, especially with the new technology and animatronics, that the stuff that you can actually do in camera that you don't have to you know, create a CG character to do. I mean, we, we talked about some of those uh, DARPA robots and what they're capable of, and if they would just skin those guys, and you know, <laughs> we'd have some believable characters. And, and uh, I, I think that a lot of even young people uh, are experiencing burnout, and I, I, I saw it. Uh, specifically when I watched, you know, I, I kind of did a marathon on the Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. And I'll just tell you what. It's so it's so fantastical. I, 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 got, I couldn't I had to stop watching it. And I, and I, I have to say that really, really well done practical effects, are, you know, in camera effects uh, are just so much more believable uh, to me. Well, I like uh, the original uh, Ray Harryhausen um, I love the stop action feel. I love the the way it looks. It's just it's it, I love the choppiness to it. Uh, it feels it feels um, oddly. I know we've mentioned it before. Kind of oddly, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, nightmarish at times uh, when you see things that are moving uh, in in stop action kind of a way. Especially if they have any type of realistic uh, makeup or realistic um, effects along with that. Uh, it can be kind of nightmarish, um, don't you think? Yeah, he's of course the undisputed dis- grandmaster of stop motion, and it is night- nightmarish. I mean, we talked a, a little bit about the Uncanny Valley in a, a podcast or two back, and and he he uh, allowed he he took us there, you know, with some of his stop motion animation. I mean, he he uh, pioneered some of the most uh, elaborate and haunting creature effects of the '60s, and and he really changed the the face of movie making. He uh, he he was just. Uh, Tremendous force uh, yes. behind behind the art and craft of it, and uh, there, there and there are others as well. I mean, uh, is even in animation, uh, Edward Muybridge, uh, an English photographer uh, who pioneered uh, hit work in in the studies of motion and and really uh, as well as motion picture projection. Um, yeah, he's I remembered his, today mostly for for his work in animal locomotion. But right, I have one of his uh, one of the one of his books. It's great, uh, great to see that that study. And so, the what was it? The I think it was they were trying to figure out whether or not all four uh, hoofs of the horse were off the ground at the, at the same time. And he, yeah, and something you couldn't see with the human eye, right? And so he managed to to photograph that um, a tripwire uh, across uh, multiple tripwires when he ran across the had a horse run across that, and it took a picture of each each camera, each frame. Yeah, he actually pioneered the the uh, zoopraxiscope, which was based on the the images he he uh, captured of the animals. And you know, his, like you said, his work is still used today by animation students to study motion and and the movement of of the body, human body. What was it uh, called again? Zoo zoo what? Zoopraxiscope. I wonder if they call it zoo because of the animals. I think so. Yeah. Okay. 
Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, well, I think one of the first ones featured the featured the running horse. Actually, you know, it's I appreciated I appreciated his work. I know a lot of people will look back at it and they look at you know look at some of the the photos and and there's you know nude they're nude nude men and women walking around, but you really when as an animator from my own personal experience is when they have people have clothes on it's really hard to tell where their um, their limbs are exactly in in positions especially when you've got uh, overlapping limbs in black and white mm-hmm. so it really kind of defines what the muscles are doing as well as the form of the body uh, in each limb uh, how it's moving is really really helpful yes and that really goes to motion capture as well one of the pioneers of motion capture we've talked about max flesher before you know, in 1915, in the middle of the First World War, uh, he developed a technique called rotoscoping, and we we've covered that in our in our podcast on what is rotoscoping. And he 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 was a pioneer that laid the foundation for today's basic basically for today's mo- motion capture technology. Absolute pioneer. We still use it today in, in different forms. Definitely, you can rotoscope uh, all sorts of things. You can hand draw over things using Photoshop, frame by frame. Um, you can use you know, 2D animation software, do rotoscoping. Uh, you can do it uh, as background plates in a 3D program like Blender, which is free, or Maya, or 3D Studio Max. Uh, so there's, it's, wow, it's, it's uh, been used um, prolifically. Yes, and animators back then would actually stand at a glass top desk and trace over uh, a projected live action film frame by frame, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, copying the actors or animals uh, actions perfectly uh, and bring them into the to a hand-drawn world and uh, it was the first uh, one of the first techniques actually it was the first technique to produce you know fluid lifelike movements that animators just couldn't achieve on their own and that's why movie bridge was so in- incredibly important as you know he he allowed animators to actually see the fluid movements of uh, of the body uh, it was quite groundbreaking at the time and, and we can't forget Walt Disney either mm-hmm. um, he was also an animation pioneer, uh, best known probably for creating Mickey Mouse and Disneyland, uh, but uh, seriously, being the first to introduce uh, movies with synchronized sound is, is probably his biggest achievement, um, as well as making the first uh, feature-length cartoons. Yes, and what about uh, De Laurentiis and, and his, his practical effects where they would build, instead of using CG today to do environments, um, was it it was was it uh, uh what was it uh gosh demills <laughs> i can't even, i i'm i'm I, I don't know the the actual names of some of these guys cecil b demills i guess i'm always thinking about like uh didn't he do um uh the ten commandments and do these big huge epic films where you had lots of extras and lots of mm-hmm, props mm-hmm. and lots can of can you imagine Sean, the production the the, the just the production challenges with with a, a shooting that stuff live no and then uh, and getting getting you know people to do the things that you want them to do and there's so many people you have as extras but uh even getting you know using miniatures for for um water effects and slowing you know slowing things down to make it look uh heavy and 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 less uh you know uh, big you know Mm -hmm. make him grand so um pretty interesting Yes, and things that one of the technologies that made made things look big and grand uh, in the movies was was something invented uh, called matte painting. Uh, Definitely, and Norm, Norman O'Don was accredited with the innovation of, of using glass painting for movies initially, and it's still even actually used today. Uh, and he'd been doing stills and uh, you know doing this technique for, for for stills and photography for a lot of years. But uh, you know our our hunger for spectacle and and fantasy and exotic locations. Uh, has has really driven 
the VFX industry. And, uh, you know, this, this, uh, the art of matte painting, it was basically a natural extension to some of the, uh, the other uh, techniques that we were, had been co had come before it. And to your point, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of artists today think that they're, they're, while there's certainly some pioneering, uh, techniques going on, I, I think that, you know, I, I've met a lot of people who, who think they're flying, um, <laughs> and, and it's just not true. And if they just understood, you know, the history of, of, of some of the stuff that we're talking about, they would really come away with a, with a deep appreciation, I think, for, for you know, more, even more deeply of, of, of their art form, you know. And how well, that goes to the point of, of traditional, traditional education rather than just jumping into the current technology is, is getting that whole uh, foundation of, you know, where we came, where we've come from all the way up to today. That makes total sense. I agree. Yeah. Well, uh, there's uh, some uh, advances that were made in puppetry, and you know, puppetry has been something that's been around since the Greek, Greek times. And you know, I, I personally, I think uh, the the Japanese uh, puppets are pretty pretty amazing. Um, I, I really appreciate Jim Henson's work uh, with the Dark Crystal and, and Labyrinth, of, of course, and, and he created, uh, of course, a, a plethora of other famous characters for the Muppets and, and all the all the spinoffs and stuff like that. So. He was definitely a pioneer in the world of puppetry. And they still, you know, puppetry and animatronics kind of goes hand in hand. Um, I agree. And Stan Winston, of course, is one of the kings of, of practical effects as far as animatronics goes. And, um, you know, he's not really known for doing any CG, uh, CG work, but uh, he, he basically redefined what could be done with creature design and puppetry. And uh, his contribution uh, to the world of practical effects uh, is, it can't be overstated. It's just, it's, and he's, it's, the technology it just build like you said it builds on what came before and you know nothing is really new so to speak um, i loved his right. designs for terminator the terminator robot uh, and then the uh, of course uh, the predator amazing amazing uh, practical effects yeah did, there's nothing quite like that I, I still look at that and i'm blown away it still holds up in fact i think we talked earlier about the practical effects of of suits on people uh instead of doing cg um, uh, you know, composites of, of CG characters on top of or CG um, prosthetics or things like that, or face replacements, things uh, like that, uh, to actually creating a, a mask that's believable that that fits around the the face and and, and a body um, with with like the predator, for example, or or, or the alien. That that kind of stuff uh, it takes it takes a lot of you know, skill in a diff totally different way. And it's, I don't know, there's, it's more, obviously it's more tactile, but it just, it seems to me, um, I think it's a lot of that's being lost in today's um, CGI um, heavy movies. Yes. And I think uh, the, the ability to light, light it properly is probably the, the key. Uh, you know, in integrating CG with the live action has become pretty, sophisticated uh these days and it's it's pretty amazing the things they can do but uh, it never really stands up to the i mean there's something about live action when you when you see a, a creature in camera with the with the lighting in the uh, the scene and and it's 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 perfect mm -hmm. um you know you have to simulate that in cg you have to simulate you know sparks flashing and firelight and and uh you know all sorts of things uh, that, that that if you don't get it right, it just doesn't doesn't look right. And well, yeah, that's that's that, that's what the Dark Knight, the original Dark Knight, um, the director there didn't want to use mm. 
CG vehicles or any of that. And so they used all practical effects in that movie. I mean, there's, there's probably very minimal CGI in there, but you, you get a different feel when you see a, a, a Mack truck, you know, upending on itself. It just, you can't simulate that to make it look uh, is real. In my opinion, there's something, it's almost like you would think about it in terms of your face when you're looking at facial animation and, and somebody, and you get that uncanny Valley feel of, of something that doesn't look quite right. It looks like a mask on, on somebody. Um, I think it's very similar to, you know, mechanical objects like cars and, and trucks and explosions. There's something about, I mean, they're getting great. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's times when I can't, I can't see it. I can't, it's not obvious to me, but I think there's something about that in our, in our minds, you know, deep down in our psyche that we can see and pick up things that are feel more visceral, more real than, than, uh, than, you know, a CGI created stuff. Well, you know, we've talked about uh, prosthetic effects and animatronics and, and how puppetry and how cool that is. Remember uh, American Werewolf in London? Uh, Rick oh, yeah. Baker won a, 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 an Oscar or an Academy Award uh, recognition anyway uh, for that transformation scene in the American Werewolf in London. And that was that was that looks good because of the very thing you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, that was that's a, that's a. I recommend that movie. Everyone should see that movie. That one, that one's so that one's so good. Gosh, that was so good. You know, how terrifying that was when watching that movie. When that uh, one of the guys was in in the, gosh, what would you say? Uh, the underground kind of the um, oh, the subway railway stations. Yeah, yeah, man. When that when that wolf werewolf first started chasing him, that was terrifying. Jack, I mean, for me, get away from me, Jack. No, but seriously, it was really terrifying when I first saw that. No, it's, it's very well done. I mean, it's that movie's shot. The whole thing is done with a lot of style, and that, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and the acting. Was, I thought the acting was great. Yeah, well, the acting was great too. I, with I with just, the comedy. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know the British angle on it was made it all made it semi charming. You know? Yeah, that's great. No, it was great. Highly recommend. Well, why don't you take us into to, 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 uh, some more current uh, stuff, Sean? Well, but some of the not, current no, don't stuff. Go, don't go over 2000. Don't no, over I'll, I'll keep century. it. I'll keep it up to that. Well, okay. things that I've, I was thinking about what in my mind over the years, uh, what kind of stuck out in my mind is, is kind of like milestones or pioneers and in, in least current, not up to, like we said, up to 2000. But Westworld, for one, uh, that was one of the things that, that, that uh, stuck in my mind where Yul Brenner's chasing um, the actor uh, Richard Benjamin, th- when the if you know about Westworld, all the all the um, robotics, all the ro- robots basically come alive and become self aware and, and start killing all the guests. But I thought that was really amazing when he's chasing him at the end of the movie, and he uh, you get to see for the first time uh, animation. Or actually, it was a pixel shader. It was a, a, a digitally processed by computer graphics and it it looks really amazing so let me just show it to you oh it was it's the a, infrared scene right where he, yeah he, it was you get to see it from his perspective where he, he sees an infrared it looks like right and so let me go ahead and take a take and have a look at that so he's looking for him right now and he's got infrared that they just put in upgraded him and so he's looking at the actor trying to find him and he sees the heat so that's processed video yeah, that's pretty amazing. That I love that scene. That that scene is so cool. And then he, 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 I'm not showing you at this point, but 
the the actor moves because he 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 knows that he can see him and he's he's following him with his eyes and he goes underneath the uh, a torch where he can't see him anymore. Okay, and then the next one that that kind of blew me away and and kind of was a a pioneering thing was in 1982. That, that was in 1973, a Westworld. Highly recommend you see that the original. The new series is pretty good. It's just, but I like the original. So yeah, Tron, it's got 1982. Its ups, it's got its ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, Tron from 1982, of course, I got inspired to even get into uh, video gaming because this stuck in my mind. But the original director, who's the animator, he was actually an animator, Steven uh, Lisberger, he actually got inspired by seeing the original video game Pong. And he, he thought, how cool would it be to turn that into a, uh, be perfect to turn uh, video game type things into a movie. And Are so you showing that? The, I'm going to go ahead and show that right now. Okay, okay. Here it is. So, of course, the... Uh, the famous uh, light cycles from Tron, super super cool. And these, it's, see how clean the graphics are. I love when those things are chasing each other and blam, explodes right into the wall. Love that. That's to me. Uh, ever since I saw the, those scenes, I wanted to get into CGI. And of course, the next one would be the Wrath of Khan. Kind of looks like Battle Tank from Atari. It does. It does. So this is the 1982 Wrath of Khan Star Trek, the first realistic fractal generated landscape that I'd seen. Blew me away when I saw this. And I said, that's a, that's a milestone. That's huge. Uh, first CGI fire, first motion blur. Pretty amazing stuff. And um, that actually was uh, done by um, Bill Reeves with the help of uh, Ivan Sutherland of, of, of the Sutherland, famous for CGI. Um, and he's one of the one of the main programmers uh, for that team. And Wasn't that Evans the Genesis Sutherland. device? What's that? Wasn't that the Genesis? The Genesis, device? the Genesis, yeah, weapon, or yeah, the weapon. So it would remake it. Uh, after that, uh, of course, I can't forget to mention 1989, The Abyss. Uh, that actually, let's go before that. Young Sherlock Holmes. Um, that was that was actually animated by. Um, uh, Lasseter, so he of Pixar, so he was one of his first uh, animation things he did with CGI was this one, Young Sherlock Holmes, um, and that was uh, a s- series by, um, well, actually it was directed by um, Steven Spielberg, so that was really amazing. That that was that blew me away when I first saw that, and then of course I'll go back to the Abyss. That was the first time I had seen anything that had liquid water. They call it liquid, um, what do they call that thing? Liquid water tentacle, I guess. Well, she was the first photorealistic fluid morphing. And uh, that was pretty impressive when I first saw that. And then the other scene, when they had the actual face mimicking the actress there smiling, I thought that was pretty, pretty amazing when I first saw Terminator that. Terminator 2. <laughs> well, th- th- yeah, that was done by um, ILM, right? So the next one was, was um, Terminator Judgment Day. Or actually, yeah, so the original Terminator, excuse me, uh, Terminator 2, sorry. Yes, with the T2, sorry. Um, the T1000 was rendered on a Silicon Graphics Iris Indigo workstation. Remember those? Yeah, I had one on my <laughs> desk. Yeah, I guess uh, according to James Cameron in this, there were only 42 CGI shots used uh, in Terminator, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, and like I said, it was done by Industrial Light and Magic's uh, graphics department. So it started from six artists and went to almost 36 to, uh, to work on all the shots from this, from this movie. 
Yeah, I think this was one of the first movies to use uh, the, the the actual video as a reflection map in the Chrome surface to kind of integrate them. Uh, you can actually see the flames in the, in his. Chrome oh yeah, the reflection exterior. of the flames. You know what's really yeah. weird about this? Is I don't really didn't didn't care for is is the way he walks. It's really clunky. It's just really odd the way he's walking out of there. Maybe it's because no, it looks keyframe. It's sure. like it's not bending from the waist or, it's, you know, you can see the deformation and that guy doesn't look right. And then uh, what blew me away again was black and white. Right. Michael Jackson's black or white music video where they did morphing. That was fantastic. So that was done by PDI, which uh, Pacific dated image image images, which was bought by DreamWorks. So the morphing was the was the rage, Sean. Yeah, so warping good, and, and warping and morphing. Remember Black Hole Sun? I think we mentioned that that video where they were mm-hmm. warping mm-hmm. the face. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty pretty amazing. And after that, of course, you know, Jurassic Park, another well, huge. Well, this one was one of the first milestone. movies to actually use photorealistic textures, real world textures on a CG creature. Oh yeah, and then you see the muscles uh, jiggling, and you just—it's pretty, pretty amazing. I just was blown away when I first saw that. And then I'll just go quickly to because I know we're running out of time. Was was uh, the last one that kind of really kind of blew me away was was uh, Starship Troopers when they had the first large scale CGI outpost battle scene, and this was the first one we see all of those creatures coming down and they're ready to shoot them. That that was an impressive scene. You know, this is a, the, one of the first movies with CG in it that I thought was really well integrated. It, it's hard to tell. Uh, I mean, they integrate it with the live action quite believably. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was amazing. In fact, that was actually a flop. It was a $100 million budget, and it didn't do really, really well. And that was uh, Phil Tippett and Tippett Studios um, that they, they worked on that. And it was nominated for the Best Visual Effects Oscar. Um, which it, it might have won if it weren't for the same time Titanic uh, was released the same year. So there you go. You know, I've watched that over several times. It's really a funny movie. I, 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 it's got some, some political overtones that just made, make me laugh. Today. Oh, Stars and Troopers? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah for sure. It's, it, it's a cult classic, man. That's, that's amazing. Boy, we're, we're at the end, and I wanted to show so much, so much more. So you want to... You want to go, why, don't we go bring it, the, why don't we uh, bring it into the next podcast, Sean, so we don't miss it? Uh, what do you mean? Well, when we talk about the next podcast, who, who are the current pioneers of, of CGI and VFX? Uh, we'll, we'll, maybe we can talk. You can kind of show some of them. Yes, I will. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'll do. I'll All right. Well, it. it's time for the uh, mailbag. Um, okay. Well, let me read the first one yeah, uh, go for it. from What is the Uncanny Valley podcast. Todd Julian says... Uh, I've been interested in the Uncanny Valley ever since I saw a Facebook post with uh, multiple screenshots of someone's Reddit post or something about the Uncanny Valley. It described how it would tie into our very ancient evolutionary time when we killed out all of the other very similar looking but not the same as we are people. I believe it goes way, way, way back. So well, that's a, that's that's true. We we talked about that how it's got evolutionary roots and how how you know the other. So we we you know we we recognize people from our tribe and we we understand we know how they look and when people don't fit that look, they're from outside and they were considered to be a threat. And so I think I think Todd's got something there. He does. Um, so this is also a comment from our podcast on what is the Uncanny Valley uh, by G Norman and G Norman says. 
I really disliked Polar Express because of the dead eyes of the characters. Agree. So, I mean, you're, you're not alo- <laughs> alone, G. Uh, that's the and it didn't. It wasn't just Polar Express. It's it's and just until recently, all CG characters had had what I would consider to be dead eyes, doll's eyes. Yes, doll's eyes. It's very very hard. Well, today's technology, it's it's much much easier, and I'll have to show that on the next podcast. Uh, so. So make make sure you tune in to that and actually look at the actual video um, that I'm showing. It's pretty amazing. So you want to do the next one? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, this one is from uh, our How Do Successful Artists Think podcast a couple back. This is by Newbie BG Khan. Uh, Newbie BG Khan says, uh, First, as a kid, I wanted to be a policeman. Second, I wanted to be a firefighter. Now, I want to be an artist. Now I want to be a coder. Oh so I, I guess he wants to be. Now he wants to be an artist and a coder. Uh, you well, can. Hey, I'm glad we inspired you, newbie, BQ Con. <laughs> you can. You can actually be both. A lot of the artists and animators that I know are, are, they actually do a little bit of coding as well. Well, right now it's 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 kind of part of the job description. Uh, the more coding you know, the better uh, salary you're going to make, and and the bit more valuable you'll be. Yeah, learn a little Fire. Python. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks again for being part of our podcast today. We enjoyed talking to you and answering Francis's question, who are the past pioneers of CGI and VFX? We hope you got a lot out of it and that you're uh, coming away with an appreciation of the pioneering fathers and mothers, of course, uh, of today's CGI and VFX industry. We didn't really talk about too many mothers, but but they're there, believe me, uh, <laughs> and why uh, they're so revered so highly. And uh, you've learned some of the techniques and, and some of the innovations created by these artists uh, as they forge new paths. And, and you've heard some of our professional insights regarding why we think they're so important as well. Hey, do us a favor and let us know what you think of this podcast in the comment section below. Give it a like and pass it around, especially if you enjoyed it or found it valuable in some way. We really uh, like reading your comments and we'll take the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, because we're working hard to make our podcast better and you can help us do that. We do a brand new episode of the CG Insider podcast every week, and we discuss different topics relating to the business, the art, and the craft of CGI animation and digital VFX, as well as other interesting and related subjects that come to our attention. And you probably want to know how they come to our attention. Uh, well, basically, you can let us know about some of the questions and, and you know, bring it to our attention about CGI or whatever. It's easy. Just head over to our website, cgbros.com, and up the About Us and over to the Ask Us Anything tab like Francis did. It's easy as that. Uh, We are both looking forward to seeing you back here for next week's podcast, where we'll, of course, be answering the related question, who are the current pioneers of CGI and VFX? And we'll see you here next week. Well, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed the CG Pros answer to the question, who are the past pioneers of CGI VFX? Thanks for being with us. If you're watching us on YouTube and you enjoyed the experience, please give us a thumbs up. Please be sure to leave a comment, too, because we might share your comment on a future podcast and mention you by name. Also, please share the video with your friends on social media. And if you haven't yet subscribed to our channel, please hit the subscribe button and ring the bell so you'll be notified when we post our next podcast. Subscribing is free. If you're listening to us on our audio-only version, please leave a comment and download the file. Oh, and don't forget to tell all your friends that they, too, can enjoy and download the audio-only version on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible.com, and Stitcher. If you're listening to us on Spotify, you can share the podcast to Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr with the share link. 
That's the circle with the three dots in it. Contact us on our website at thecgbros.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, and Instagram. And be sure not to miss the next episode when the CG Bros will answer the question, who is pioneering CGI VFX today? This has been episode 2145 of the CG Bros CG Insider Podcast. See you next time.